Well, please join me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let's talk together about learning from the past. The only thing better than learning from your own mistakes is to learn from the mistakes of others. I had the, the advantage of being the youngest of five in our blended family. And so I got to watch all of my siblings move into their teenage years before I had to face the teenage years. And I can tell you, I watched them and each one had their version of dealing with mom in the house. And, and I would see the tears at times and the raised voices at times and different levels of rebellion my siblings would try. And I remember just sitting back with the luxury of some years of waiting till I hit it. And I thought, nobody's happy doing that. I don't think I want to do it that way. And so I was able to avoid some of the tumultuous teenage years early on before Jesus saved me at 17, just by, at least at home, uh, treating my mom in a different way. So it pays to learn from watching other people ahead of you. Spiritually, it's the same way. There are people in our lives who've gone before us following Christ. If we're wise, we'll look and think, now that's how I want to do it. I want to follow Jesus like that one. But at the same time, when we see people make mistakes, we should learn from that. Okay, I don't want to repeat that mistake. And this is what Paul's doing now in 1 Corinthians 10. He's going to teach the Corinthians to learn from some of the mistakes of God's original chosen people, the Israelites. He here in the New Testament is going to teach them from lessons from the Old Testament in the failures of Israel. We're going to see a couple of things here. But one thing I want you to notice with me. We're going to see this point loudly and clearly. It's possible to be in the community of believers and not be one of the believers. It's possible to be in a church and not truly know Jesus. This is part of the warning Paul's going to give to the Corinthians here. First, he's going to talk about the blessings of God on Israel. And then he's going to show us the sins of Israel that we might not repeat them. So here we go. Verses one through four, the blessings of God on Israel. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Here Paul refers to those great blessings of God on his people, particularly as he led them out of Egypt in what we know of as the Exodus. God had saved his people from 400 years of slavery, heard their cry, and in his time brought them to freedom. He saved them. He protected them. He guided them. He gave them his provision. And he did so in these unmistakably supernatural ways where the people of God would know that was by the hand of God. And Paul gives some of the examples here. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud. What's he talking about there? He's making the point that God gave faithful guidance to the people. This is Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. Paul's saying, remember back to God's original chosen people, the Israelites. God gave them faithful guidance. He gave them as they were coming out of Egypt, a cloud and God's presence in that cloud. And so the people of God didn't have to wonder which way should we go Follow the cloud. When the cloud stays still, God wants us to stay still. When he moves out, we move out with him. Of course, it's hard to see a cloud at nighttime. And so God was so merciful to communicate through a pillar of fire at night. And God was guiding them through that. And you and I are reminded that God is a God who guides us. 
And in my life, I need his guidance. In fact, in all of life, I need guidance. I, I, when I was assembled, I like to say that I was assembled in my mother's womb without a compass. Anybody who's ever traveled with me knows that I have a really poor sense of direction. Even when I know where I'm going, even if I've been there many times, I still can lose focus and miss turns. It happened to me just a week or so ago. Our pastors, you might want to know, uh, one Monday of the month, we'll go to Sam's Club to eat lunch. And on another Monday of the month, after our pastor's meeting, we're going to go to Costco. We get the, we're big spenders like that. We, we like that cheap, cheap lunch at Costco or Sam's. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, it was our Costco day. And so um, I heard that, I knew that. And so we always go in two cars. And so Derek was driving the lead car and they left the parking lot earlier. Tommy's with me in my car and off we go. And I know I'm supposed to turn on Hungry Spring Road to head towards Springfield to get to Costco, but I'm talking to Tommy. He has a great sense of direction, but I'm just talking and I, I just lose focus of where I'm going. I'm just going somewhere. I passed the turn and Tommy called it. Hey, you missed the turn. I said, oh, well, we'll go down to Hungary and we'll get on Broad Street and we'll get there. So all's fine. We continue talking. We're talking. I don't know what we're talking about, but it was good. And then I pull into the Sam's Club parking lot and uh, we both get out of the car. But Tommy's the one that caught it. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're supposed to be at Costco. And so I was humiliated, embarrassed, you know, just laughing at myself because just another day in my life. I do this stuff all the time. So got back in the car, got to Costco. I get a text from Derek saying, are you guys okay? <laughs> we were way late. And so I, I need guidance, even when I know where I'm going. In fact, I think this is what God's doing for the Israelites here by that pillar of cloud and fire. Look, I'm not just going to tell you once. I'm going to show you every day. This is the way that you're to go. He's so faithful to God. In fact, I love this. This is what the Bible does in my life. It's not like read it one time. I think I know where I'm supposed to go. Those daily reminders in the word of God. Hey, this is the way to go. God's saying, I'm the one to trust. Here's what you need to turn from. Here's the where we're going. God is faithful to guide us. He did it for Israel. He's doing it for us. We also read this here. Paul reminds the Corinthians of what God did for his people all passed through the sea. And so here we have this occasion where, yes, coming out of Egypt, this great moment of salvation where the people of God had come out, Pharaoh had changed his mind, had unleashed his army on the Israelites, and now they're pursuing. But the Israelites really pinned in at the Red Sea. What are they going to do? And we read this, Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What a dramatic moment of salvation. Even if you're new to the Bible, you've probably heard of the parting of the Red Sea. Here it is, a great moment of salvation. I love how it's also recorded in Exodus 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Isn't it amazing? Here's God brings them out of captivity. Now they have a major crisis army behind them, a sea in front of them. And God makes a way dry land they go through. And the rest of the story, of course, God judges the Egyptian army by bringing the water on top of them. God is a God who saves. That's what Paul is reminding these Corinthians about. All passed through the sea. Then verse two, we see this, and all were baptized into Moses 
in the cloud and in the sea. And that's interesting wording, isn't it? To be baptized in the Moses. But Paul's just making the point that God gave a deliverer in the old covenant who would be a type, who would be one like Jesus, who Jesus would come as the ultimate deliverer, who will deliver us from our sins. We are baptized into Christ and we are led by our Savior. Then we see this, all ate the same spiritual food. And that's referring to that miraculous way that God fed his people as they left Egypt into the wilderness. The people would grumble. They would complain about, we don't have food. Did we come out in this wilderness to die? Maybe it would have been better to stay in Egypt. And God miraculously feeds them with bread from heaven. Exodus 16, 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will bring, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. What a miracle for God to provide bread from heaven on the ground every day. Then verse four, and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Likewise, God saved them. Now he's feeding them. They cry out for water and they're in the middle of a wilderness and God gives them water from a miraculous source. Not where you would look, but from a rock, God provides water for them and Paul says here, even that, a representation of Christ who was to come. We build our lives on the rock and he is living water for us. Exodus 17, 6, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it. And then the people drank. Here's the point of Paul bringing up these occasions of God's salvation and provision. He's basically making the point, is there anything else God could have done for his people? There's nothing lacking on God's part. He was so gracious, saving them, fighting for them, leading them, feeding them. And you and I want to be aware that this is the same God that we follow. Let's not be forgetful of how wonderful our God is to save and to lead and provide for us. Let's not be people who fail to give thanks to our great God for all that he's done for us. You and I can falter there. One of the men I respect highly in our area is a man by the name of Fred Weymouth. And he has quite a dramatic testimony coming to Christ. He came to Christ out of homelessness on the streets, out of severe drug addiction. That's his past. And thankfully, he hasn't gotten over what Jesus has done to transform his life. But, but even Fred will tell you that he can struggle, like all of us, to lose that wonder of thankfulness at what God's done for him. Recently on social media, he put this out. He said, I remember a time when I was strung out and homeless, incarcerated. Everything I owned fit in a backpack, could not face life without being in a drug or alcohol induced fog. I felt so alone and I wanted to die. No clean underwear, socks, or a way to get clean. I remember when Casey and I found out we were not going to be able to have children of our own. I remember all the wreckage I caused in so many people's lives. I remember my life without Christ. He continues, I prayed about many of the above things. And when the Lord answered these prayers, at some point, it became not enough. And so he asked the question, gratitude, how do you keep gratitude? He says, I notice some things about people. We get on the other side of our pain and desperation, and we are so prone to forget the little things. And so he starts recounting things 
that he wants to remain thankful for. He says, thank you this morning for a new life in Christ. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Everything, Lord, beyond the above is blessing and because of you. Thank you, Lord, for the children that you've put in our lives. It's beyond amazing. Lord, thank you for what I do have. I love this. He says, clothes. But man, I've got a washer and dryer. I love it. I have clothes and a way to keep these clothes clean now. Thank you that I wake up every day not wanting to jam needles in my arms. Thank you, Jesus, for friendships and accountability in my life. Lord, thank you for Casey. Lord, I have all I need. Lord, I'm still homeless. Thank you, but I have a roof over my head. And then he continues this way. We have to be careful not to lose this thankfulness. When we start complaining and grumbling about what we have and don't have, this is good too. When we start to chase the American dream, when we slip on our Walmart jeans and say, these aren't good enough, I want some gap jeans. What we first were given is no longer good enough. So we continue to chase better and bigger and never find the joy that we had in the little things. Remember, thank God for the little things. That was a great word from him. God saved him from much. We can begin moving forward and lose our focus. I love that. Wanting to stay thankful for our salvation and all God has done. I know in our lives, we can be that way ourselves. One of the things that I do to try to just remind myself of gratitude, but also of God's provision is this check right here. So right there by my monitor on my desk, I keep this check. It's a check for $99.40 to Miss L. Lilly. Uh, this is a check from 1989. This was my rent check when Joy and I were newly married. This is about a month before we went off to seminary. Uh, this was our rent and water. We were able to pay our rent and water for $99.40. The, the rent, this was not the 1800s. This was, this was 1900s. Uh, this was a miracle then because the going rate for apartments in our college town while I still was in school was 300 and something a month, which still sounds like the 1800s. That's amazing. But, uh, but this, this sweet widow, all she wanted was her grocery money from this garage apartment that her husband had fixed up before he died. And so what a, what a blessing for us, because I'm still in school. She taught as a teacher at a small Christian school, made, made very little money. We wondered, how's God going to supply as we get married? $80 a month apartment. I would still go for this, $19.40 for water for the month. That's a pretty good deal itself. But this here is a reminder for me as I see it on my desk, as I, as I look at it from time to time, God, you took care of us then when we didn't know how you'd do it. And this is a representation of all the years since he's been faithful. Not everything you always want, struggle along the way, but he's been faithful. We want to maintain that understanding. Our God is good. He is worthy of trust. We should give thanks to him. So Paul here for the Corinthians, he recounts for them, hey, remember how good God was to Israel. But now he reminds them of the sins of Israel so that we wouldn't repeat these sins. Let's look at now verses five through 10. Verse five is the hinge verse of this passage. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Notice with me verse 5, nevertheless, God has been good, 
He's provided salvation. There's nothing he withheld from his people. But nevertheless, most of them were not walking by faith in God. He says some of them sinned in this way, some sinned in another way. But did you notice that word most? Most of the children of Israel, though they were in the community of God's people, most of them weren't truly God's people. Most of them did not have faith. Most of them were not showing that in faithfulness. And verse 6 says, now these things took place as examples for us. Notice with me just for a moment here, the interconnectedness of all of the word of God. Notice what we are. We're in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And Paul hearkens back to the Old Covenant to bring a lesson for us. True, we're not under the Old Covenant laws as we're under grace now, but still all of the Bible is for us. And these lessons for us in the new covenant here. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Listen, that we might not desire evil as they did. New American Standard says that we would not crave evil things as they craved. Our craving is to be for God himself. We're to desire nothing more than we desire God. We're not to follow those other cravings that we often have. And Paul gets very specific for the Corinthians and for us now. What particular things should we avoid that the Israelites entangle themselves in? Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And so Paul here refers to the time when Moses went up on the mountain to meet God. And it seemed like he was delayed to the Israelites. And so they said something crazy. As Moses is away, they go to Aaron and they say, could you make us a God that we can follow? We don't think Moses is coming back. And so they gave their gold to Aaron and Aaron made a golden calf for the people of Israel to worship. It, it's shocking even to recount what they did. Aaron said to the people, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, this golden calf that he had made. And the people rose up to worship that and to play, we're told. Craziness. Listen, do not be idolaters as some of them were, we're told. Now, is idolatry a temptation for us in our time? We reminded ourselves just a few weeks ago that we live in a world where many still follow idolatrous religions. And so this is very common in our day. Billions of people worship idols. But also in our very secular location here, many people love their things and they love their comforts. And that is a real idolatry that we would face here. Really, anything that you have set your affection on, whether it's another person or something or things you like, and you put it in that place of affection in your life, that can become an idol for you. And the word of God says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. In fact, one of the real ways of idolatry in our age is an idolatry of the mind. Most of our neighbors feel quite comfortable with this. Most of our fellow Americans feel quite comfortable devising a God in their own mind in contrast to the God of the Bible, the God who revealed himself here. So you find many people that you know, maybe most people that you know, feel quite comfortable saying, well, to me, God is this way. Or I like to think God is more like this than what the Bible says. What are they doing? They're making up a God in their own mind, a God that doesn't exist, a God who cannot save, but it's an idolatry of the mind. Listen, we turn from all idolatry maybe even especially any idolatry of the mind. We worship the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, expressed, we see chiefly through Jesus Christ, we worship him. So we are to turn away from idolatry, but Paul also once again reminds us to turn away from immorality. Notice verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
Here Paul is referring to Corinthians to Numbers chapter 25, when the sons of Israel were enticed into immorality by the daughters of Moab. They were ensnared by these daughters of Moab into their sexual immorality and their worship of Baal. Can you imagine? God's people brought out of Egypt, delivered and fed and all that, who had become ensnared in sexual immorality with a pagan people and to begin to worship their gods. What did God do in response? We're told here 23,000 of them perished as God brought judgment on his community of peoples. And so here is another reminder for us to take seriously this call away from sexual immorality. Do you notice with me, this is not a new issue. Old covenant, the children of Israel engaged in sexual immorality and God took it very seriously. Paul is teaching this to first century New covenant people, God still takes it seriously. Remember, he's already taught them 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, all about sexual immorality. What, what do we read there? Flee from sexual immorality. And he hasn't left the topic. Here he comes, chapter 10, and he reminds them again, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Take it seriously, just as God does. No matter what the culture says about sexual sin, well, they won't call it sin, but whatever the culture says, or whatever your own desires say, take seriously this call to turn away from sexual sin. Can I remind you, the only legitimate sexual relationship that we can have is with your legal spouse. So your husband, your wife, that's the only legitimate sexual relationship. Anything else the Bible would call immorality, and we are to flee from that. Another way we're told here to avoid the example of the Israelites was this, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And this is that occasion when the people began to once again speak against Moses. They were showing themselves again to be faithless and God sent these venomous snakes among the people to judge them for that. I, I think about that. We, the, some translations say fiery serpents. I would think that's the worst judgment. I, I, would, I would not want any part of that. If, if a whole bunch of venomous snakes were kind of unleashed on me, that's just terrifying. But this was the judgment that God brought on his believers, his people. And because of this, this putting God to the test, they were showing themselves to be faithless after all he had done for them. And you and I must take this to heart. We must not put Christ to the test. We can't be in the community of believers and not be believers to be faithless. One of the ways you and I can put God to the test is to be so accustomed to the idea that he's a God of grace and mercy that we don't really have any intention of following him at all. We can kind of excuse ourselves. Well, he's so merciful. He's so forgiving. It really doesn't matter what I do. I can do anything that I please because it's all I'll just covered. Listen, that's a way of putting God to the test. And then this, he warns us against grumbling. And we might, well, grumbling, I get immorality, idolatry, maybe putting God on the test. That sounds serious, but grumbling, surely God's not upset about that. But look what we see in verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And Paul here is referring to Numbers chapter 16, where 14,700 died in a plague that God sent to judge them for their grumbling against him and what he was doing. So we ask the question, am I a grumbler? Am I a complainer? Am I a discourager? Am, am I like them in being a faithless rebel? That should jolt us. I don't want to give myself a pass on that. God takes all these sins very seriously. So, so do you grasp the warning in this passage for us? Be reminded that God is 
the same. He's a God who saves and he provides and leads. He's wonderful, nothing lacking on his part. He saved you if you are a believer in Christ. He saved you from your sins and the coming penalty on sin. You won't perish if you believed in Jesus. But remind yourself from this passage, and he also saved me out of these sins. I'm not to walk like I used to walk. I'm not to behave like I used to behave. I now follow a new leader in my life. And in the power he supplies, I want to walk in a very different way. So we just looked at the height of Israel's blessings, but the depths of their sin. We just considered the extent of God's provision for them, but the extent of their punishment because they kept rebelling. So now just a couple of words for ourselves now as we continue to apply this to ourselves. This takes us to verses 11 through 13. Let's look at this together. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here in verse 11, he repeats what he said in verse 6. He said, there's an example here from the Israelites and their failures for us. I love it. These were written down. The Holy Spirit had these preserved for us for our instruction. The Corinthians, as you remember, they were becoming smug. They overestimated themselves. They thought they were wise. And Paul's having to, once again, call them to the truth and to call them to holiness and faithfulness. So a couple of lessons here. First of all, never think that you're too spiritual to fall into sin. Never think that you're too strong as a Christian that you would fall into sin. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If many in Israel, seeing all the miracles God did, if they could fall into sin, it could happen to some of us as well. If they are capable of turning their backs on God into crazy sin, listen, we need to understand that's, we have that potential in our sinful hearts as well. We're the most vulnerable to temptation when we think we're not vulnerable to temptation. When we overestimate ourselves, a great fall can happen there. So let's just remind ourselves of great men who have fallen. How, how about in the old covenant, we think about David, a man after God's own heart, he didn't go into his life thinking he would do the things that he did, but adultery, then leading to the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And so we read that, we're rightly horrified by what he did. But while horrified and grieving that, we say, well, I want to take heed lest I fall. How about in the new covenant? We see men like Peter, who was proud and he told Jesus, if everybody else turns away from you, not me, I would die for you, Jesus. And remember, Jesus said, Peter, will you really die for me? This day, you will deny me three times. And so we grieve with Peter, but we also say, you know, I got something of that in my heart as well. I can overestimate myself. And so let's not ever think that I'm too strong. I don't need to worry about things. I'll never fall. Take heed lest you fall. But then this, never believe that you must sin. Never believe that you must sin. Have you noticed this in your life that Satan will tempt you into sin? He wants you to disobey and, and really estrange yourself from your Savior. But one of the things he'll try to tell you, and this, this verse helps combat that, Satan will try to tell you that actually some sins you must commit. Some temptations are just too strong for you because you failed in them so many times, you might as well not even put up any resistance at all. Go ahead and give up quickly because you can't fight and win. But hear the word of God promising otherwise. 
No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Three great words here about the temptations that all of us face. First of all, all temptation is common. Another tactic of Satan in your life and in my life is this, to make you believe that you're the only one going through the temptation you're going through. That helps keep you in isolation when you think everybody else has it together. You could look around the church family. I don't think anybody else struggles with sin and temptation like I do. And then therefore you'll keep your struggle to yourself and you'll feel a sense of unique shame over your temptation. Can I tell you what the word of God says? There's all this temptation is common. That's why in the life of this church, you don't have to hide your struggles. The struggle is beautiful. The problem is when a believer says, I'm not going to struggle. It's not wrong. I'm just going to live my own life. That's not Christianity. But what's normal is to say, man, I hate that I have temptations. I wish I didn't fail sometimes. Let me find some allies to help me here. And this is why your life groups are so important. And if you haven't found your life group, let us help you connect with one. Where over time you can get to know some people that you can trust and you can share where you're struggling with some temptation and you can find a brother or sister who says, I I understand that. Even if it's not their particular thing that's testing them right now, they get it. They have struggles in their life. Listen, all temptation is common. You're not the only one facing temptation. Here's another word about temptation. All temptation is, we could say, bearable. It's all bearable. In other words, we're told here it's limited. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Now, let's remember, it really is all beyond our ability, but Paul estimates that it's our ability in Christ. Remember what we've seen in 1 Corinthians, that if you are a believer in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have God himself, God the Holy Spirit living in you. And when you face a temptation, there's no temptation you'll face that's stronger than God. And you're supposed to tap in, strive according to his power that mightily works within you now. And so you can just think about whatever Satan brings, whatever temptation, whatever is appealing to your flesh, it won't be stronger than Christ in you. It's a promise of the word of God. And then this, all temptation is escapable. All temptation. Notice what he says. There's always going to be a way of escape. So don't believe the evil one. You you just have to sin. You're a slave to sin. No, the scripture says in in Romans that you're no longer a slave to sin. That used to be true of you. You've been set free. So we think, well, why do I fail so much? The the reality is when we sin as believers, it's because we wanted to sin. We can't say Satan made me do it. I couldn't get out from it. No, we have to just own it. Whenever we sin, that was all 100% on me not rising up in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was me. Yes, I wanted to follow Christ, but in that moment, I wanted that sin. And that's all on me because there is always a way of escape. Believer, here's what we do. Let's just strategize for a moment. We're in this moment where we're having right now probably very little temptation at the moment. But temptation's coming maybe in a few moments, probably just because I brought it up right right now for some of you. That's how Satan works. But here, let's, let's strategize ahead of time. Know that maybe some familiar temptations are coming for you this week. Almost certainly. Plan now to take the way of escape. There's always going to be a way of escape. One of, one of the ways we can take the way of escape is to not put ourselves into some of the situations. If you know already, I fail every time I'm in this situation. I, I'm always failing here. Then don't get in that situation. If you have any control over your circumstances, take the way of escape first. What, what are we told again? Flee sexual immorality. We're told elsewhere, flee idolatry. So we, we run from those things. Don't put yourself in. Don't think you're so strong 
that you won't fall. But then think about there are times when temptation just comes at you. You're not planning for it. You're not seeking it. But even then, no matter how fierce the temptation, look for the way of escape and take the way of escape. And so let's come back to how we began. You can be in the people of God and not be one of the children of God. Today, can I remind you, you need Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Israelites, or many there, most weren't genuine believers. It's possible to be in this church family where people around you love Jesus and know Jesus, but maybe you don't. A person might protest and say, but I've been a Baptist my whole life. Do you know you can be a Baptist and perish in your sins? Being Baptist doesn't save you. You say, but wait a minute, but I'm not just any Baptist. I'm a member of that church. We're glad to have you, but this church cannot save you. You need Jesus. Your faith is in the wrong place if you're trusting in being Baptist. If you're trusting in being a member of this church, that's not where your faith needs to be. Where should your faith be? Jesus Christ. He's the one who has lived the perfect life that you and I have not lived. He gave himself on a cross to atone for your sins. He was raised from the dead. Very clear. Who should I trust to save me, to cleanse me, to give me life? It's Jesus alone. So today, would you forsake trusting anything else? that you might clearly and only trust in Jesus to be your savior. And then hear the call here. And now that he saved me, I just want to follow him faithfully. I want to walk in his ways and not in the ways of the past. Let's learn from the past. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful that you're a God who saves. We love reading about how you parted the Red Sea to deliver your people. But more thrilling is, Lord Jesus, what you were willing to do on a cross for us to save us from our sin, to save us from hell that we deserve, to instead bring us into your family as your adopted, forgiven, new, new life children. So God, thank you for what you've done. We want to trust in you alone. We want to follow your leadership and your leadership alone. So Lord, do your work in your people. I pray in particular for those Lord who have been trusting someone other than you, that today, God, you'd bring them to that awareness that they would call on you for everlasting life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.